Today we're continuing to study the last teaching section in Philippians chapter 4. And over these past months, we've looked at two important themes in the Christian life. The first addressed how to follow Jesus in such a way that we experience the dynamic nature of the Christian life by dancing to the tunes, the, the foundational elements of what makes us Christian, of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that Jesus has truth that he wants us to know and embrace in life, fleshing that truth out in Christian community. God has placed men and women in community with each other around the world in these things called churches, in community groups, at coffee tables throughout the week. God's truth is meant to be lived with other people. That's the way scripture teaches it. And it is ultimately meant to be processed or applied, you might say, to the mission of Jesus. In other words, all these beautiful things we read about Jesus, these applications that they have to our life, this time that we have with each other, the end game is not that. It's not just Jesus and us or Jesus and me. The idea is what we just sang about. It's that the reality of who Jesus is in our lives is meant to be proclaimed to the rest of the world in the opportunities that Jesus gives us. That doesn't mean we're brazen or arrogant, but it means throughout the daily rhythms of our life where God provides spaces for us to bless people in the name of Christ and serve them in the name of Christ, we are to act. That is the mission God has given his people. And so we've really talked a lot about what it means to experience joy. The second, the latter portion of Philippians, sort of the way we're wrapping up, addresses how we remain in Jesus' joy. And this is just as important a truth to know. Because many people hear about joy, but don't actually have it in their life. Many of us sing the songs that tell us Jesus promises us joy, but we don't feel that in our lives. And this is what Paul addresses in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at a verse in Colossians today. But the driving point behind what we're studying in Colossians marries back to Philippians 4, where Jesus tells us we have got to learn to dwell on the good nature of God. We have to decide in our minds and in our hearts where we set up the residency of our mind and our heart. Where are your permanent thoughts dwelling? Where is it that you invest your mental and your emotional and your spiritual energies? And if you want to have joy, the place to invest those things is in the person of Jesus Christ. And so three weeks ago, we talked about how dwelling on God's truth in your life is a critical discipline to embrace because it leads us to Jesus's joy. And today I want to add another layer to that idea by taking some time to take an honest look about where we currently are or are not at the core of our being. And in doing so, I hope that we'll be able to figure out whether or not we are a conduit for Jesus's joy or if we have things in our lives that might be a roadblock keeping us from experiencing Jesus's joy. Now, I want you to think of this process like looking in a mirror. And I've seen most of you today and can vouch for the fact that the majority of you probably did look in a mirror, except for two of you. The hair is terrible. You've got to sort that out, right? The mirror, sort of the fruit of the mirror, is evidenced in the way we cohabitate with each other, right? Think of this process like this. I am going to assume every single person at least once a day looks in a mirror, likely in the morning before you leave for your daily activities, whatever that is, work, school, church, anything in the middle of those spaces. And the point of a mirror is that you, you look into it to get critical information about yourself, aesthetic information, like how we look. And the theory behind the mirror is that when you see a part of you that is out of sorts, you got a part of your hair sticking up, or an eyebrow that needs to be trimmed for those of you over 40, or a beard that's too long for those of you under 40, whatever it is, you look at the mirror and you say, I, I need to make a correction here. So the mirror is a, a great physical example of the spiritual reality we're gonna look at today. We look at it regularly in order to keep our physical appearance in order. And the reason we regularly look into the mirror is to catch stuff before it becomes a, a systemic problem, to figure out what is wrong with the image. And it is truly an objective tool that doesn't lie. We might interpret it in different ways, but the mirror doesn't lie. It gives us a concrete assessment about what we really look like. 
And in the same way that we look into a mirror to sort out our physical image every day, in our faith, we are called to look into a different type of mirror. It's, it's accomplishing the same task. In fact, there actually are analogies in the Bible that refer to this mirror illustration I'm using. We look into the, into the truths of Jesus, right? His truths, what he says about our lives, what he says about the world. We look into that mirror, at least we should be, to determine what our spiritual and emotional image is. That mirror is God's truth. The way we go to the physical mirror to see how we look, we go to God's word to figure out how we look before God. What might be out of sorts, what is affirmed, what is encouraged, the places we need to grow and develop. All of that stuff, that is a journey that puts you on a path to Jesus' joy when you regularly spend time there. Spending time in the word helps us to know what our physical, spiritual, and emotional life looks like. And I want to explain how. As we study it with our hearts and minds and flesh it out in everyday life with each other, we cannot disconnect those two things. You can't fly in and out of a worship service and get a word from God and go process it on your own. You can, but it's an incomplete faith. You can't do that even with with a Sunday gathering or in-home study. At some point, God calls us to live all truth out for the sake of his son and the world, other people. All truth in God's economy is meant to be applied in relationship. Ours with the Father and then the Father's relationship with other people. So it's important that we don't disconnect these ideas. As we look into the, the word, God begins to show us the areas of our lives that please him. The areas of our lives that we can grow in in him. He gives us the perfect reflection by which we are to measure ourselves. And when I say measure, I don't mean like measure up and feel like a failure. I mean measuring up in God's grace. This is an important point to make here. He helps us to know who we really are and who he wants us to be. God lives in the middle. And let me explain what I mean by that. This was something that I, it hit me pretty hard this morning as I was reviewing my notes earlier in my study. And it made me think like I maybe need to do a sermon on this next week. We'll see where that goes. But the idea of living in the middle is that when you hear a message like today, when we think about this in our lives or the way that we care for and shepherd other people, a lot of times it's very easy for us to think about where we are and where God wants us to be. And it's, it's incredibly easy to sort of be an arbiter of truth here, to point out where we are not or where others are not. That definitely has a place in the Christian faith. You have to know who you are. We're going to talk about that. But you cannot stop there. That is not the permanent place God calls us to dwell. In fact, I would say by living in that space, you are likely to rob joy from other people and maybe from yourself. Because it gives us a a critical or a judgmental spirit. Living in the middle means the people of God, much like God's son. Jesus is very clear about who he wants us to be. But he's always very faithful to shepherd us in between those two spaces. In other words, he is the bridge that moves us to the space that God wants us to be. And that needs to be present in our lives. It is one of the ways we, we receive and derive joy in life. We don't just look at people or our own lives and say... You know, you should be this, you should be that. We don't see the Christian faith as a penalty system that we just throw red cards to when people are not where God wants them to be. We might have that initial inclination. But the true faith, the faith that Jesus gives us says we also need to be willing to move people, to shepherd people, to care for people into that space. It's not just about throwing the penalty card. In fact, that's a problematic issue in the New Testament if you look at Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees. What Jesus wants us to do is have a burden for those who need to grow in Christ, who need to know Jesus more deeply, and to care for them enough to labor in that area. He helps us to know who we really are and who he wants us to be in his grace. And this is so important because we live in a world, straight up, we live in a world where there are a lot of voices constantly telling us who we should be and what we should be doing. It is on every, every TV advertisement. When you go out into this movie theater foyer, you are going to see signs These signs are trying to direct you to go see a movie. Everywhere you go, there is a touch point where somebody's trying to tell you something. 
Let's be very honest. This morning, I'm sharing some things that I think are important. This is a voice, right? I'm sort of practicing what I preach here. My hope today is by looking at these two questions that we're going to discuss, we can begin to lay the foundation for how we really live with God's joy in our heart. By cutting through the voices. I'm not saying the voices don't matter. But I am saying we have to learn to dial into the ones that matter most. And the predominant voice that matters most in our, most in our life is God our Father. It's the truth of His Son, Jesus. It is gospel. So let's jump right in and look at the first question I want us to examine today. If you want to remain in Jesus' joy, this is where we're wrapping up. To find and remain in Jesus' joy, you must be honest about who you currently are. You have to ask yourself a very important question. Who do you believe you are right now? Who is it that you think you are? Now, this is a super simple question, often uh, with a complicated answer. Some of you might have immediate answers that pop into your head. You might say, I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm a father, I'm a brother, I'm a sister, I'm a boyfriend or a girlfriend, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I do this, I go to this school, I have this job. There's lots of ways we can identify who we really are. And the reason that I say this is a simple question with a complicated answer is because in my experience, what I find is people tend to answer this question almost solely by looking at whom they are at the outside. They, they sort of use the physical reality of the mirror. They identify the surface level realities of who they are, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that if you answer this question solely by answering the question of who I am on the outside, you will miss addressing the heart-deep reasons that make us who we are on the outside. And that is a very strong truth in the Christian faith. We are who we are. We do what we do because of something that exists deep inside of us. There is a control center in our lives called the heart. And it dictates who we are, what we say, what we do, and what we think. And so if we start this conversation by just thinking through all of the external things we are, the things that we say, and where I'm going with this is, when we ask the question, why might we be without joy, is it's very easy to just answer this externally and to create something that I like to call the list. I've shared this with you before. The list is essentially all the stuff that we want to change about ourselves. It's all the things that we think, if, if we could just get rid of this thing, whatever this is, we would be joyful again, or we would be happy again, or we would be complete again. The list. And the list is almost, it's very common. I mean, it's not common the way they feel, but what is on that list in people's lives is usually very common. It's things like, hey, I just don't know why I'm so anxious. If I could just not be anxious anymore, I, I, I'd have joy again. Or maybe you have been in a prolonged season of spiritual blueness. You know? You've just been depressed and out of it. Stuff's going on in your life, and we think, man, if these circumstances would just go away, my depression would go away, and then I'll have joy again. Or maybe we say, like, I'm just so tired of being a workaholic. If I could just figure out how to manage my job responsibilities, my life would be easier. I'd have joy again. Or I'm so impatient. Or for those of us with kids, young or old, am I really raising my kids the best way I can? You know, am, am I the parent I should be? Maybe I'm a little bit selfish. Maybe I'm a little insecure. Maybe I'm really arrogant. Maybe I can be really mean. I'm the type of person who can be really lazy. Whatever it is, that is what I mean by the list. It's all the stuff on the outside that we believe if we can fix it, remove it, change it, adjust it, it's going to help us to be happy and joyful again. Now, as we seek to answer the question, like if you really think about diagnosing yourself before God today, who you are and where you're at in life, sometimes we can accurately answer this question. We can truly, objectively say, this is where I'm at in life. Sometimes the items on that list are correct, but a lot of times they are not. And that is because we live in a world of extremes, and people tend to drift to extremes in most areas of life, when, especially when they try to answer a question like this. The two extremes you'll find here are the first one is you're a person who's too hard on yourself when you make the list. Like, your list is just too long. You really are, like, brutal on yourself. 
And we encourage, you know, self-awareness here in the name of Jesus. That's important. But maybe you're the type of person whose list is so long and lengthy that it, that it, it sort of it describes a self-deprivation problem where you can't see anything good in your life and you just constantly feel like a failure in all areas. That's one extreme with the list. The second extreme is you're just a person who thinks too highly of yourself, right? Your list needs to be a little longer. You have like one of those post-it notes that's this big, you know, it's like a quarter of an inch by a quarter of an inch, and all your stuff is on the list. And it's just a big question mark because you don't think anything's off base, right? Both are problems. One signifies that we probably think too lowly of ourselves, and the other signifies that we might think too highly of ourselves. And the reality of being a human and being in relationship with people is we pretty much always have places in our lives where we are doing well and areas of our lives where we need to grow. And if we can be okay with that, then what that does is it gives God a fertile soil to work in those areas of our lives. We can be encouraged in the areas where we are, you know, where the image is correct. And I mean image in a very deep and meaningful way. But we can also be comfortable with the days we wake up feeling like our image is out of sorts, maybe fueling why we are without joy. And we can get before Jesus and say, I know I'm off here and, and I'm not okay with the fact that I'm off, but I'm okay with the fact that I can be off in life. And I want to invite you into my life to help me sort this out. Both of these are extremes. They are a roadblock to joy. And this is why it is important that we invite others whom we love, God first and foremost, but we invite others whom we love and trust into the process of answering this question. We will never be able to become who God wants us to be if we don't have people in our life that are shepherding us to that place. Or if we are really off base about who we currently are. It's like I said a few weeks ago. In Christianity, the absence of joy is almost always rooted in turning away from God's truth and believing a lie you've told about yourself. For example, with depression, which I am fully aware of the physical, spiritual, and emotional stresses that puts on a body. It can really ravage your world. Oftentimes the root of that, it's a lack of self-worth. And that is a lie. It's a lie. When you understand who Jesus says you are, you understand that you are incredibly worthy and valuable in his eyes. Part of the remedy in addressing our joy issue is starting to identify where there are places in our lives that are not truthful and asking God to help us see and experience the truth again. Asking for healing and help in those areas. That is how you find lasting joy. The simple thing I'm trying to say here is we need trusted truth inputs. They have to be there. And I'm going to give you an example of this. Uh, so you guys know, especially if you've been with us for a while, that I'm a pretty avid baseball fan up until the, the Yankees lose. They lost last week. I'm a South Brooklyn kid, and they got knocked out of the playoffs, and now the World Series has resumed without the Yankees, and I don't watch it anymore because I'm angry and bitter. That's what's on my <laughs> list this week. It should have been the Yankees and the Dodgers. It would have been like the best World Series. 1955 was the last time that happened. You're thinking, like, I like soccer. Don't even talk to me about baseball. But baseball's a big deal in my life, and for years I was able to coach – uh, my son, he doesn't play baseball anymore, but it was one of the greatest highlights of, of my 30s anyways, was coaching my son's baseball teams. Uh, they are sweet, sweet memories. He's moved on into other athletics at this point. But there was something very neat that happened with coaching. First of all, I love the game, and I love being involved with the game with my son. And there are just some rhythms in baseball that if you watch the game, you, you will know what these are. It's a super common scene in any baseball game when a batter steps up to the plate. This is even true with, you know, with kids who are under 20 that there are always two opposing voices. There are multiple teams, two teams on the field with multiple fans. And all of these teams are yelling things at a batter. It's a little more docile in the, you know, the Little League world, but nonetheless, the intent is still the same. On one side of the team, when a batter gets up, the, 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 the team that is actually behind the batter, they're yelling for the batter to succeed. 
And they're usually yelling out a couple of critical things. They'll say things like, it's, it's like the same stuff, they're like, we just need to make contact, or get a base hit, or some people don't understand the game will be demanding a home run. Uh, you know, that's what, that's what the parents yell. Or the most common one, and I mean common, meaning like you could come from a part of the world where baseball doesn't even exist, and for some reason, when you watch baseball, you will utter this phrase. People are just accustomed to yelling out, like, raise your elbow when a kid is at the plate. And it's funny because that's actually probably the worst thing you can do when you're batting. But kids hear this, and they start being shaped by folks yelling at them. And some games, kids would try to stick their elbow into their ear while they were holding a bat, and they could not hit a ball because of it. Try to swing a baseball bat with your elbow up above your head. It's an endless list of stuff being yelled at at a kid. On the other hand, the opposing team sends a contradictory message. They want the batter to miss the ball, play it straight, straight forward. They don't want contact. They don't want home runs. They want strikeouts. Or when they make contact, they start cheering very loudly when the defense gets them out. That's what they're yelling about. It's a perfect example of a slew of voices and opinions bombarding a person, in this case, a kid. And I'll never forget one game, you know, part of coaching a team or managing a team is just sensing the rhythms of your players. And I had this 10-year-old kid get up to bat. I'll never forget this, completely overwhelmed slightly tearing up and was having a quasi meltdown at the plate because he got up to bat at a time that would be considered stressful in any baseball game. Um, no exaggeration, it was one of those runners on base, two outs, last inning scenarios. He was the last batter in the game and we needed a hit to win. And so when I saw that, I ran out to the plate to have a quick talk with him. Quiet talk, people screaming and yelling and I'm chatting with him. And I told him a few critical things. I said, listen, you have to settle yourself. The first thing you have to do here is drown out try to drown out all these voices. You have to listen to the voice that matters most in the moment. That's your coach. Now, I don't mean that in an arrogant way, but in the baseball field, that's the voice that matters most. I tried to help him phase that stuff out. And I told him a couple of critical things. I said, all we need you to do today is your best. Remember your form. Don't stick your elbow in your ear. Don't do that. There's a way to swing a bat. You know what to do. And I told him, you have the skill to do this. You have everything you need as a person and a baseball player to get a hit here. And I said that you need to know, no matter what goes on here, your team is behind you. Whether you hit that ball or not, we love you and care about you. Do your best. Go get it done. And then I smacked his helmet. That's like my little ritual. And I ran back into the dugout. And you know what happened next? Take a guess. He struck out. (laughs) And lost. And I didn't care. That's so not true. I did care. You know, I'm like the most competitive person on earth. I deeply cared because we were like within inches of winning that game. But when I got my composure together... I realized something different. I realized that I did care about the loss without doubt, but in losing that game, I think our team that night won something more significant, especially for that batter. That batter, with great confidence, actually accomplished the real objective. We could have won that game, right? And that would have mattered, but it probably would not have shaped life for the rest of life for that young man. What was encouraging to me was that he had the confidence to swing the bat. He got beyond all that craziness. And rather than hitting a home run, he struck out. But he overcame the real challenge that was before him. He learned to focus on what mattered most, and he accomplished what he got up there to do. And that was to, and at bat, you don't always get hits, but you gotta get up there and swing. He was able to prioritize a sea of voices, opinions, and expectations, and he swung the bat with confidence. And in the Christian faith, I would say he swung the bat with freedom. Literally, uh, reminding him about who he was and what he was capable of set him free in that moment. And that makes a coach very happy, especially if you've been engaged in athletics. You see life progress in an athlete. And I want to say that there is a similar principle here when we talk about Jesus' relationship with us. When we live like this, as we follow Jesus, it also makes our God very happy. And I want to explain what I mean. Let me connect the dots. Here's the point I'm making. 
When we begin to talk about who we are, and as we'll see momentarily, who we want to be, whatever it is, people screaming at us, telling us what we should or shouldn't be, when we get to that place of knowing where God wants us to be, you will never get to that place if you remove objective inputs from your life, if you, if you remove mirrors, if you remove the Bible from your life, if you remove the work of the Holy Spirit from your life, if you remove solid men and women who love Jesus, whom God has put in your life, you won't get to that place. Or at least if you do, it'll be very hard, and I think it might be incredibly incomplete if you arrive there. You will never get there without gospel truth, community, and mission. Because as people, we tend to paint pictures of ourselves at times that aren't always true. And it is very easy for us to think too highly or too little of ourselves without meaningful, trusted inputs. So if you think you're a person who is very gracious, just sort of wrapping this idea up, but everyone around sees you as impatient, there might be something off there. Or if you think you are a bad parent, but your kids think you're a great parent, there is a good chance there might be some misreading here. And that misreading can really lead us to a place where we are without joy. And I'm telling you, the condition of the human heart is to get it back. We want to make sure when we plot a course to see joy in our lives again, we're plotting the right one, lest we go down paths or pursue things that we think might restore our joy, but further rob us from it. And this leads me to the second question that I want to share with you today. It is important that we understand who we are before God with, by having very important, meaningful, and trusted truth inputs. And let's say you do that and you get to the place where you identify who you really are. You can confidently say, man, I need to grow in this area of my life, which is a good thing to say. That's a great place to be. When that happens, you must ask yourself a very serious question. Now, who does God want you to be? Because you don't want to invite God into the process to help you identify where you are and not let him shape the process of helping you become who he wants you to be. That's what we read about in Colossians. This is a dwelling point that I really believe is worth looking at. Colossians 1.15, Paul tells us, he, meaning Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. That is the ultimate image that we are trying to strive for in life in the grace of God, by the grace of God. And here, Paul teaches us God's ultimate desire for your life, much like having peace and joy. All of that comes from being remade into the image of Jesus. It comes from actually being at a place in your life where you look at Jesus and you say, I really do want to be like that. I want to be like him. I want that rhythm. I want his priorities in my life. Pressing into and resting in God's desire for your life is really the only way to experience an unassailable joy in your heart. I'm convinced of that. And the older I get, the more I believe it. Let me explain. Let's say you identify that you're a person who's joyless because you suffer with anger or from anger. The list says, right, hey, I just got to be less angry. That's great, right? Try to be less angry just by noting, notating it on a list. Or maybe you're a person who is without peace in your life. And you say, you know what? Um, I just have to, I have to surround myself by things that, that create peace in my life. And then I'll find peace again. It seems like a simple fix. But there's no way that we can surround every area of our life with things that just bring us peace. That is not the world we live in. You'll experience a lack of peace the moment you start your car and drive it out of the parking lot here. Or maybe you're a person who struggles with selfishness. It's very easy to say something like, you know, I need to be less, less selfish. I need to figure out how to be selfless. If you come to the conclusion, for example, maybe that you need to be more spiritual, it's very easy to just counteract that list by saying, I just need to put positive actions in my life. I need to read the Bible and pray more. All of these things I'm talking about, being selfless, trying to address anger, figuring out why you are joyless, having peace in your life, all of these are really commendable good things. I'm not knocking the desire. I'm just saying if the motive and desire is, is not rooted in resting in Jesus, 
we likely will not accomplish these things. We likely will not get to the place where we truly have peace in our life, genuinely find joy, really selflessly become people who are selfless. Like we derive great joy from pouring ourselves out on an altar before Jesus and living for the name of him and the sake of other people. If we don't find rest in Jesus like that when we are pursuing these things, these things can actually become self-destructive. They can become very self-centered forms of moralism or spiritualism if you make corrections in your life apart from the presence of Jesus. And there is a perfect story. It is one I've shared with you before, but I share it again. Not because I don't have illustrations, but because it is the best one. It's one that I think highlights this truth perfectly. It was written by a, a, a famous preacher from the last century named Charles Spurgeon. And he told this story highlighting this issue in a person's life about what it means to essentially desire the things of God without God, to want joy from God, to, to almost see God as like a utility whom you only really want to know him because you want to get something out of him. Spurgeon told this story about a king and a nobleman that highlights this truth beautifully, and I'll reread it to you this morning. It's behind me, so just follow along. He said, once in a kingdom, long ago, a gardener grew a huge carrot and decided to give it to his king because he loved him. He gives something to the king because of his love for him. And when he gave it, the king, you know, who's a wise king, discerned his motive and knew that he expected nothing in return. So as the gardener turned to leave, the king said, Here, my son, I want to give you some of my land so you can produce an even greater crop. It is yours. And the gardener went home rejoicing. So great story of a person who serves the king by genuinely, selflessly giving something to him. And there's this amazing blessing that is applied to his life because of it. Gardener goes home with joy. A nobleman, however, heard of this incident and thought, If that's what the king gives a gardener in response to the gift of a carrot... What would he give to a nobleman if I gave him a fine horse, which obviously in the world's economy is much more valuable than a carrot? So the nobleman came and presented the king with a fine horse as a gift. But the king also discerned his heart and said, you expect me to give to you as I did to the gardener, but I will not, because you are very different. The gardener gave me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Now here's the point of what Spurgeon says here. The reality of this is that there are, there are two people if you were to remove names and details, the actions are the same. Two people approaching their king, offering the king something. But we only know, because the king is wise, that the motives, the, the, the outside, if you will, the list might be the same. But the driving motive is incredibly different in how these two people approach the king. And this story teaches us something extremely important about all motivation in the Christian faith. But especially when it comes to our motive for finding joy since that's what we're talking about. It is this, the task of remaining in Jesus' joy by truly knowing whom God wants you to be, desiring the image of Jesus in your life, the road, the, the pathway to joy. It begins by first finding your identity in the truth that you belong to God. In other words, this carrot story, what makes it so memorable is that this, this farmer, this gardener, knows the king and loves the king. And that is what fuels the rejoicing. It, it begins by knowing the purest motivation you can have to become any creation, any new creation in any area of your, of your life. The purest motivation you can have to do anything in Christianity is a desire to love your Father in heaven more deeply by becoming more like his son Jesus on earth. The true power and blessing of dwelling in the truths of God, on the truths of God, is not getting something from God. This is the second half of the story, and it is perhaps the most systemic problem we often face when we go to God. We go to him really wanting joy, 
But what we want more than God is what we think God can give us. And what happens here is that throughout the process, especially here, what you see is the, the process changes the gardener, the first gardener. It is that interaction, that experience, that blessing that, that changes the person genuinely. We don't even have an example of what happens to the guy who, who had the horse. It's pretty sure to say he went home joyless that day and probably felt like, man, I gave the king a horse and came home with nothing. Joyless, because the motive was wrong. The beauty of this idea of dwelling in truth, the beauty of growing in Jesus, is that you are invited to be in the presence of God. That's what we just sang about. It is not just getting something from God. It's the fact that God is cultivating changes in our lives. In other words, not like us. Key distinction. God's desire for your life is much deeper than just, just converting what you do. He doesn't just want to take anger and make you less angry. He doesn't want to take negative things and make them positive things. Ultimately, I guess that is what he's doing. But it is that process. It is that bridge I spoke about earlier. That really is where the rubber meets the road. He does not write the same list we do. The real joy in following God is the fact that he walks with you across the bridge. He sees change as a rich relational opportunity to make you more like him. And when you understand why God wants to recast you in Jesus' image like that, when you see why God wants you and I to be more joyful, it is destined to create a, a different motivational structure in the heart. One that causes us to pursue God for the right reasons. Because you now see that God wants you to be like Christ so you can experience a deeper level of relationship with him. That's the end game. Is you get to be in the presence of Jesus. You get to be more like Jesus. God wants your ultimate motive for joy. Not just to be getting joy. Not just to be changing the things in life that you feel like are robbing you of joy. But through that process, he wants you and I to deeply experience him in the depths of our hearts. And the more deeply we understand that motive in our hearts, the more likely the pure our joy motives and methods will be. I'm going to share with you one more quote this morning, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. This is from somebody who uh, has had a great influence on my life. I mentioned him about a month ago. It's an author named Tim Chester, and I'll tell you, any, any book that he's written is well worth reading because I think he captivates the human heart in a way that connects God's truth to our hearts. He really has an ability to to speak emotively into these areas. And I want to share something with you here that he says about this reality, about why God does what he does in our lives. Why when we say we are without joy, but we want joy, why it matters. Here's what he says. He says, Jesus shows us God's agenda for change. God isn't interested in making us religious. Think of Jesus, who was hated by religious people. God isn't interested in making us spiritual. If by spiritual we mean detached, that is the battle cry of spiritualism in our world today. It's kind of very ambiguous. Uh, Jesus was God getting involved with us. Here's the bridge. Here's the point of making. God isn't interested in making us self-absorbed. Jesus was self-giving. He was personified. God isn't interested in serenity, although we may pray for that. Jesus was passionate for God, angry at sin, weeping for the people of the city. In fact, it's pretty fair to say that Jesus' pursuit of his Father in heaven oftentimes took away from his serenity. But he still was joyful. The word holy means set apart or consecrated. For Jesus, holiness meant being set apart from or different from our sinful ways. It didn't mean being set apart from the world, but being consecrated to God in the world. He was God's glory in and for the world. And so you see, for the Christian, when we think about who we are, when we think about the places in life we want to be, particularly joy, we should never just have the word joy at the top of our list. It's okay to have that on the list. But if we are running hard after God to get joy back... I think at the end of the day, we might think we're offering God a carrot, but find out it's a horse. However, we have to be very mindful 
of the desires that shape all of our joy-robbing or joy-enabling behaviors. And I want to tell you what that is. It is an aspiration to be more like Jesus in deep and meaningful ways in the world. According to Chester, to be God's light like Jesus is in the world. That is really what should make us joyful. Simply put, you have to ask yourself why you're bringing God the carrot. That's what I want you to think about this morning in our conclusion, in our response time. What carrot are you offering God? I know a great many of you, and I know that we have people who who are carrot people in this church. That is the best way to pursue God. But ask yourself, as we move into this time, are you seeking joy? Maybe some horse-related themes, right? Are you seeking joy so that you can be more comfortable in your life? More desirable to others? Maybe to get something out of God for reasons that are not entirely altruistic? Because if you are, you really are selling yourself short on who God really wants to make you. You're selling Jesus short on who and what he did for you, really. The nature of the cross is, is much more than just you know, changing your behaviors. It includes that. But Jesus is, Jesus is concerned with your heart deeply. So think about this. Here's how we wrap up. God loves you and cares about you so much that he makes you in his image. You've been made in his image. The image of Paul that Paul talks about in Colossians, that is our true image. It is the purest image of joy that we can have in life. We can have lesser images, that's for sure. We can pursue things that that are lesser forms of humanity, but the way God intended us to be, even with the fall in mind here, we know, right, that the fall marred our image beyond repair. Even with that in mind, we can give thanks that when Jesus was lifted on the cross, he gave us the chance to truly experience restoration with God. He mended the broken image. And while it is true, unpopular, and even painful to hear that we as people failed God when we fell short of his image, and we sinned against him, the bitterness of that reality is that God has made a way for us in Christ. He built the bridge. He lived in the middle, the place we should be too, in our own lives and for the sake of others. We were originally made and then ultimately redeemed to be mirrors that reflect the goodness, grace, and, and just beauty of who Jesus is. And when it comes to finding joy, at some point we've got to make an image decision. You have to figure out what you were designed for, to fully follow Jesus or to allow some other desire, some other motive in life to define your image. You see, the motivation for what image you want to pursue in life matters because it orients what you live your life around. But there is an important distinction we must point out in the Christian faith. Your external image is really a reflection of something much deeper in your heart. It's how we open, and it is where we will close. In order to experience real joy, you have to get to the root of why you are without it. Because what you will find is that if a certain circumstance in your life is is robbing you of joy, and I am not naive to this, circumstances can rob us of our joy. I promise you, if you don't learn to find joy in circumstances, once that circumstance is removed, another circumstance will rob your joy. The same is true with all of these things we've talked about. Jesus is ultimately concerned with addressing the well of joy because it can drown out every matter of life. And this leads me to the question I leave you with this morning, the one I want you to reflect on during response time. God has explicitly, clearly made you in his image. He wants that for you. The question you ask yourself now, or at least that I encourage you to ask, is do, do you want that same thing? When you think of joy, do you think Jesus? Or do you think of joy as some abstract emotion or feeling? How you answer this sets the pace for how you understand and experience joy in your life. And that is what is so ironic about a teaching like this. Some of us really want this, but we aren't experiencing the promise of joy because we've let a, another voice define life. We have another mirror speaking into us, and maybe an unhealthy one. Or maybe you're, you're unable to see your true image in Jesus because you are still living in shame for past failures. Broken relationships, hurt, fill in the blank. That stuff is very real. But so is God's grace. And he can work in that stuff. 
and help you to be healed. Jesus took the full weight of all that stuff on the cross so that you and I could be free. Look into that mirror. Others are joyless because they're too proud of their life successes. Man, I'm telling you, humility, or too much humility, like self-deprivation can ruin us, but so can too much pride. Too busy worshiping self at the expense of worshiping the one who made us. Maybe you're in this room today knowing God's joy is available to you, but you just can't get your heart to feel that anymore. Maybe it's because you're looking into the wrong mirror. Maybe you need a truth to correct a lie. Now, if this is you, I want to challenge you to do something. Look into the right mirror. Ask God who you are now. Ask God who, you, who he wants you to be. And invite somebody in your life to do that today. If you're plugged into a community group, talk to somebody this week in that group. Maybe you're visiting, you're here for the first time, you're not in a CG. You want to talk to somebody. Let us know. We'll get up with you this week. I promise we will talk to you. Let a truth input. Go to God's word. Let the truth inputs validate or invalidate where you are. But don't leave here not knowing the fact that while God absolutely loves us where we are, it does not matter where we're coming from, he loves us. His grace promises that he will never leave us that way. And that is the bridge. That is him seeing where we are, but also seeing where he wants us to be and faithfully laboring in our lives to help us get across that. Know that God loves you. That is why he died for you and for me. Let that be your hope and your motivation as you determine what God wants to do in your life right now. Ask Jesus, what is he saying to you about your image today? And what are you going to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time we've had together in your word and singing to you. And I pray, Lord, in these, these closing minutes that we have this morning, in you know, less than five minutes, we'll be, we'll be back out in the world. We'll be back out doing our thing. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a, a concrete space of solitude right now to think, to pray, and to process what it is we have talked about this morning, what it is we have sung about this morning. May the voice we hear most now over these next moments be yours. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.